بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد الخير الأولين والآخرين وعلى آله وصحبته أجمعين بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد so some people are asking like everything will be on a podcast there's a podcast uh, called Swisscast you can find it on Spotify you can find it also on uh, the Apple store uh, so I'll put these lectures up there as well inshallah as well as last night's uh, lecture and there's other lectures we do have a Tuesday night halakha that's much more maybe relaxing than this uh, alhamdulillah as well so we want to welcome everybody we're going to try to build that out as it moves forward so it becomes more of a community halakha Instead of just like, let's listen to someone give a talk. Uh, so look for that, inshallah. Uh, Imam Khalid also has like a really awesome halakha on Mondays, as does Sheikh Fayaz, uh, inshallah. And then there's a lot of things happening. Uh, so let's quickly review what we went over because that was a lot. Um, Imam Ahmed Zarouk is writing this text for the reasons that we mentioned. And then we said there's like three or four foundational principles that you need to be aware of. Qawa'id, right? It's qawa'id at tasawwuf. So these, these principles are going to appear silently throughout the text as we read through it together. Um, he doesn't obvi- uh, always express it, like he doesn't like explicitly say it. So I want you to be able to like kind of be aware of some of the logic that moves as we go through some of these principles, especially in the beginning. So the first one we said, right? that concern is given for meaning, not for the term. So, like we said, like different names of sciences, knowledge, whatever, doesn't matter. There's another axiom, I didn't give it to you. Another principle, قائدة, لا بستلاح, لا بستلاح. We don't argue over terms. It's a waste of time, man. So, if you think, I said earlier, about kind of the political situation in America, we need to avoid getting caught up in terms and force people to play ball on meaning. And that's very important when you're dealing with an assumed ally or an assumed enemy. Because I've noticed that even in liberal circles, there is a salient form of Islamophobia that may be more toxic and more damaging than that on the far right. And usually it's rooted in the assumptions of who Muslims are. So I like to engage people. I don't care where they align. When you hear the word Muslim, what does that mean to you? And then staking our claim, and if anyone is going to define who we are, who should do it? We should. But here, he's, he's restricting this discussion to kind of like the religious issues. People argue over convert, revert, you name it. That's why Imam al-Shafi'i, uh, when people accused him of being a Shia, his response was, if loving the family of the Prophet means I'm Shia, I'm Shia. So he doesn't answer with the name. He answers with what? With the meaning. Uh, the second uh, principle that we talked about is a tark laysa bil Leaving something is not a proof. A proof for two things. Number one, a proof that it's forbidden. Or number two, a proof that it's obligatory. So, you know... Uh, And we mentioned that there are like three conditions to that, right? Or four. Number one, like there's not a text that, that says if you do this, you're going to go to hell. Um, the poet says, In this poem, that we'll, we'll learn it in the future, inshallah, about leaving things. He said, the first... The only thing that allows a talk to be haram is if there's a text that says whoever performs what's been ordered to avoid may go to hell, like threatened with hellfire. Number two is the word haram or, for, or, or leave it is used in the context of that action. Like alcohol, So don't come close to zina, uh, fornication, Just avoid alcohol. So it's like clear. And the third, we talked about the role of, of, of scholarship. So how does that play out? So like sometimes you see Sufis, they gather together and they sing prayers to the Prophet like salawat. Somebody may say, Hada, the Prophet never did it. Hada laysa And you can say to them, is there anywhere in the Quran that says, oh you who believe, don't gather together and send salawat upon the Prophet. Is there a hadith that the Prophet said, that don't, do not gather and send salawat upon me. 
إذا الترك ليس بي بالحجة. To avoid it isn't a proof. This is very important, by the way, because it's been irresponsibly used in almost every sector of the Muslim community to undermine organizational growth, institutional growth, individual growth. And sometimes what's interesting when, when we go through the axioms, and last time we didn't get to finish, people start to say, like, man, I've really understood Islam incorrectly, man. Like, I've formatted myself in a way that's, like, kind of the opposite of where it's headed. So, we see sometimes people gathering together to pray Qiyam. Like, every once in a while, like, a mass center or somewhere will have, like, a group Qiyam. Everybody comes together. There's, like, uh, some, some, you know, engagement. And then people pray. We do Qiyam here sometimes on Thursdays. The group prays together at night. And somebody will say, you know, the Prophet some of his companions never did that. But is there a text that says, don't do that? Is there a text that says, whoever prays Qiyam together is going to hell? And are there texts that also support that idea? So when Ibn Abbas, he said, God be pleased with him and his father, I saw the Prophet praying at night, so I joined him. And then my aunt Maymuna bint al-Harith, the aunt of Ibn Abbas, the last woman the Prophet married, she joined us. Is that Jama'ah? Or is it not Jama'ah? It's Jama'ah. So like there's evidences to support that action. So here's where the methodology of the Shaykh, I want you to understand his philosophy. You don't have to agree with him. But as we read the text, you'll be like, oh, okay, I see that. Uh, and then the last thing that we talked about was innovation. And of course, those scholars and great people who followed the opinion of Malik, that every innovation is astray, every innovation should be avoided, they have that hadith to explain that position. The majority of scholars say, this hadith means, kullu bid'a Because the Prophet said, man sunna sunna sayyatan, whoever starts an evil sunnah, meaning bid'a, but then he said also, man sanna sunna hasanatan. Whoever revives a praiseworthy sunnah will be rewarded. So Prophet himself denotes bad bidah, good bidah. That's why the majority of the fuqaha, they use that terminology. Bid'ah hasana, bid'ah sayyah. Bid'ah madhmuma, bid'ah mahmuda. A praiseworthy innovation a disliked innovation. Praiseworthy would mean what's rooted in the general text of Sharia, like to pray, to make dhikr. And there's conditions for that we won't talk about today. It's long. Then on the other, thank you so much. God bless you. Coffee is not bidah. You know, coffee when it was introduced into the Muslim world, it's called qahwa. Qahwa means khamar. Like its real meaning in Arabic is khamar. So one of our great scholars, Sheikh Salim al-Bishri, he used to be Sheikh al-Azhar, a hundred something years ago. They brought him coffee. He said, what's that? They said, qahwa. He said, Auz billah. You're giving me a qahwa. They said, no, Sheikh, it's not like that qahwa. It's a new qahwa. He said, ma dama tusamma qahwa fa'atruku. If you're going to call it that, I ain't drinking it. Right? That's his personal opinion. Imam al-Qarafi al-Madiki wrote in the 6th century, I don't know its ruling, but it helps me study at night. Talking about coffee. SubhanAllah. So the last uh, principle is the idea of bid'ah. And these two schools that came out traditionally from both. And there needs to be like a sense of respect and like objectivity, and mercy, and patience. Religion is not only the place to be harsh. Religion also is the place for understanding. Yesterday we began the first the, the introduction and he said something very important and it's right here. He says, My purpose in composing this brief text is to ease the understanding of the Sawwaf's principles and its religious foundations, joining it with the Usul and the Sharia. And I talked about what that meant earlier. Uh, emancipating Taskiyat al-Nafs 
from the constructions that had infested it and corrupted it by dipping it back into the sacred fountain of religion. Sheikh can do that because he's a legal scholar. Those of you who are in law, this is a judge. Like he's a beast, mashallah. He was an incredible jurist. So he's taking now a legal perspective, taking sharia, which is a spiritual perspective, and trying to merge them together. So that the sharia tethers to sawa from irresponsibility and corruption. And, you said earlier, Irich, makes it clear. It's not, it's not something that's hard to understand. Prophet said, He I left you on something clear like today. The first axiom that he's going to begin to talk about is a little complicated. So don't get frustrated in the beginning. After a while, inshallah, it will be as easy as last night. Like last night, I started people out with just walking on the treadmill. Now we're going to do some blurpees and pull-ups. Okay? So, without bands. So, it may be a little complicated, but be patient. And one of the things you can take from it is you can appreciate, like, these people were very intelligent people. And those of you who are lawyers, you'll be able to see the Aristotelian component of his language. Particulars, universals axioms, because he's trying to take the language of, say, Al-Ghazali and give it a legal tone, a legal tent. So he says, Al-Kalamu fi shay' far'u tasawwari mahiyyatihi. This is very important today in, in, in a time of the lack of academic tolerance. And we said earlier, religious intolerance and academic intolerance, excuse me, where people are impatient with one another. Words are thrown out, and the, the understanding of these words become like fit. This is how I understand it. Khalas. If you don't agree with me, I'm not going to deal with you anymore. So he says, a discussion on any issue is simply, and he uses the word branch. It's hard to translate. When you see a scholar use the word branch, what that means is its foundation is not certainty. Fara means that people have engaged about it, engaged it, and thought about it, and came to a conclusion. Cognition. That's very important because when we use the word far in our Islamic tradition, it means that we should give each other leeway. It's an attempt to understand something. So it's not reality. So if if we set the framework of our discussion in that way. That means that we're going to be what with each other? Patient. What else? Understanding. Understanding. Am I going to be dogmatic? If I, if I appreciate the fact that these are issues for which the only truth is left to God. There is a methodology to come to an opinion, and we all may follow that same methodology, but our outcomes as we come up from the water of investing our cognition in an idea, we may see it differently. So you see, he's starting to talk about the meanings of a concept. What concept do you think he's taking you to? Why would he do this? Why would he start with the names and meanings of something? And where do you think he's taking you? I'm challenging you now to think. What does Allah start Adam with? Oh, subhanAllah. What is Adam taught to do first? And we taught Adam what? The ability to name and give meaning. So traditional scholars like to start with meaning. And they said meaning, this is important in postmodernity, man, meaning is of two. Non-negotiable meanings and negotiable meanings. Non-negotiable are those things the Qur'an said, this is what it is. This is haram. This is bad. Stay away from it. Don't try to rationalize it. Avoid it. Negotiable meanings are those things that Qur'an and Sunnah didn't talk about or are not in the purview of devotion and worship. Isn't your deen amazing, man? 
It's not just like, I hate you, you don't pray like me. Stop eating chicken tikka from that place, it's not halal. It's much deeper. So here, what type of meaning do you think he's talking about? Negotiable or non-negotiable? Negotiable. And where he's taking you is to the word tasawwuf. And what it means. So he's going he's gonna to take you through the back end of that website. If the word tasawwuf is a website, he's walking you through the back side of it. He's saying, this is why people came to this conclusion about it. But in their conclusions, there's going to be diversity because the concept tasawwuf is something with which we're allowed to discuss. The generality of it is ihsan, to worship Allah as though you see Him, even though you can't see Him, you know He sees you. Yeah, what does that mean though? So people may differ over meaning. So he says, Al-Kalamu fi shay, discussing something, far'un. The far, that idea far, far is a branch. It's not the foundation, it's not the roots. So it's, it's rooted, you see something he does, the idea of dipping ideas into the sacred fountain of sharia, is mentioned here. Far, because the branch has to be connected to what? The foundation. So the ideas are percolating from the foundation of Islam, but their branches, and those branches may have different sizes of fruit, different ripeness, different taste, but they go back to the same source. So in one word, man, he accomplishes a lot, man. That's why he's dope, mashallah. Is everybody with me? I love this stuff. My wife's like, you make it hard for people. I say, I one, man. No one says Fortnite's hard. And they die in 10 seconds. So he says, Al-Kalamu, discussing something. Fishi. On any issue, academic issue. Far'un. Tasawwuri mahiyati. We have an axiom that says, Al-Kalamu fishi. Far'un an tasawwurihi. That the ability to talk about something represents a part of understanding it. I can't talk about usually what I don't understand. Like, acceptable speech is what he's saying. Academic speech. Atasawwar means conceptualization. So what he's saying is that when you talk about something, when people talk about something in an academic setting, it's merely a reflection of their cognition. It's not from God. That's, that's the point he's making here. بِشُعُورِ ذِهْنِيٍ مُكْتَسَبٍ أَوْ بَدِيهِيٍ And he said, and that, and that cognition, that conceptualization, could be through acquired learning. مُكْتَسَب It's like, I learned, I studied, I'm educated, I've qualified myself, now I've come to a conclusion. Or it could be intuition. Street smarts. Some people just know. So what he's doing here is recognizing the possibilities and the parameters of a discussion on the meaning of something. He's not sanctioning either or. He's just saying this is what happens. People talk, they talk. And he said this is required to acknowledge this process. As you engage in discussing something, it is incumbent upon you to acknowledge this process. Why? So that then you can examine the thought of a person, the meaning they... So now you meet an Islamophobe. Hey, what is, who are Muslims? Murderers? How did you come to that conclusion? Well, you know, I watched Fox News. I studied with Sheikha Megyn Kelly. 15 years. I saw this movie, The Toxic Arab. Now you can begin to unpack what's formulated that logic. So he says, it's a must for you to appreciate this process so that you can divide their ideas and accept them or reject them or polish them. Raddan wa qabulan wa tafsilan. And you can try to see if you can link them to sharia. It's interesting. Don't burden yourself too much with it. If you want me to make it simple, he's just saying, you got to understand where people are coming from so you can break down their ideas. But because he's a lawyer, he's like really, really precise in his language. 
He's writing very well. Jim Acosta, I need to read the ruling for 20 minutes to make sure everybody knows what I mean. So he's saying it's a must that we acknowledge there are ideas which are debatable. We acknowledge that, then we need to appreciate the process that led to the outcome of that idea. So then we can, I don't want to use this word, but we can deconstruct it. And then we can see and examine each part of it. He said something beautiful. فَلَزِمْ تَقْدِيمُ ذَلِكَ عَلَى الْخَوْضِ فِيهِ It is a must before we go into the depths of the meaning of something, a concept or idea or word, that we acknowledge this process. If we're going to be rigorous and disciplined. Man, can you think about what Sidi Zaruq would say if he saw how people argue about religion on Facebook right now? He loses his mind. Like people just throw out terms and they just start going at it. And we have a, a class in our tradition that was taught in Ezhar uh, for more than 800 years. Unfortunately, it was stopped being taught like 40 years ago. Called Adab al-Bath wal-Manadhara. The etiquettes of research and debate. How do we engage? Debate club, man. Kiwanis. Kiwanis at Ezhar. Key club at Ezhar. So, and there was a reason for this. Because scholars felt that religion is a sharp sword, man. And if it's not handled properly, it can hurt people. And it can create division and problems. So there was this idea of creating adab around religious discussions. Not, not to quell investigation, but to keep it friendly, man. So that's what he's doing here. Because during his time, there's concerns on two sides. People considered him from the Sufi camp like, you're turning your back on Sufism. So he was hated. The other side are the hyper-literalists who are like, you guys are a bunch of grave-working freaks. So Sheikh is in the middle. And being in the middle is never easy. So what he's saying is like, first of all, these notions that we're talking about are theoretical in nature. We're trying to understand the concept from Qur'an and Sunnah which is not explicitly defined. In order to do that, let's acknowledge this process and then see where each, of, where each one of us is coming from. And then we can be constructively critical or cooperative around the concept. This is your deen, man. When Allah says to the Prophet to say to the people, تَعَالَوْا إِلَىٰ كَلِمَةٍ سَوَاءٍ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَكُمْ Let's come together on things we agree on. That's our Qur'an. وَلَا تُجَادِلُوا أَهْلَ كِتَابِ إِلَىٰ بِلَتِيهِ أَحْسَنٍ Don't argue with the people of the book, except in a better way. Be refined. Have some dhok, dhok like, uh, like taste and etiquette. So Shaykh now is coming in and saying, let's frame this discussion in this way, so we can appreciate where we're coming from. How did I come to this conclusion? In order for me to appreciate where you're coming from, I have to do what? I have to talk to you. I can't be your enemy. I may not agree with you, but I still have to listen. And then I can take time to understand why you've concluded what you've concluded. And you can take the time to understand why I've concluded what I've concluded, or this school has concluded what it's concluded. And then I can be critical. And I can say, I'm not vibing with that. He said, that's a must you got to do this first. And as I said, today, 144 characters, people are solving the crisis of Islamic law. <laughs> SubhanAllah, man. Sheikh will lose his mind. And then he says, and also that's important because when you do that, it's going to make i'lam. It, it's going to identify what you're actually talking about. So if I say, Islam is a religion of terror, and then you identify Islam for what it is, my designation is wrong. You made i'lam. The word alam is a flag. So you said, this is what it is. 
So you've acknowledged what it really is in the in the area of debate. And then you've also clarified like what subject matters and context does it touch on? What is the components? Because concern isn't for the name, concern is for what? The meaning, what it is. Mahia. The word mahia up at the beginning is from mahia. Mahia. What is she? Mahia means what is the essence of something. Mahia. Its existence. So the shaykh, this first principle, is teaching us, man, how to chill a little. (laughs) How to be more open-minded. How to be a listener. How to appreciate where people may be coming from. Before I jump to judging their conclusions. And also a methodology of debate. Methodology of engagement. And he says, Fefhem, which means what? You need to understand this well. Any questions about this before you go on? It's a little heavy, man. But it's important. And I, 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 my wife was like, I don't know about all this, man. I said, look, just like people can kind of appreciate the depth of the tradition. The second principle, he says, When people argue over what they consider to be a given reality, like they agree it exists, Sufism exists, for example, but they differ over what it means. In Kuthir, if those differences are abundant, those differences are merely a representation that comprehending its whole reality is impossible. I'll give you an example. What is the most different thing on in existence? It's just being honest. Is what? Like the most contentious difference historically through mankind is on what? Who is God? Because God's transcendent. We had a student once his father was a sheikh. And in Azhar we have oral exams and written exams. So his father told him, when you go to the exam, just say fi ikhtilaf in every question. Yani, there's a difference. I had one teacher, he said, always say, Wallahi fi masala ra'yan, yani. Like in this issue, there's like two opinions. He's like, khlas, you're going to pass. I'm not going to say if I did that or not. But that student, he went and he said, And they were saying, wow, mashallah, he's so intelligent. He knows about all this khilafat, all these differences. And then one of the professors, he's like, yeah, okay. What about God? He said, There is a difference of opinion. Then they failed him. His father was a sheikh and he came and he said, yeah, some people say God is three, some people say God is a thousand, some people say God is Jesus, some people say God. You didn't ask him the truth, you ask him about things which there's differences. That's the greatest difference in humanity. We would say the number of differences on religious issues is merely of a reflection of our incapacity to comprehend religion in its entirety. So that should lead to humility, not arrogance. فَوْقَ ذِي كُلِّ عِلْمٍ عَلِيمٍ The Qur'an says, above all knowledge, knowledgeable people is the one who truly knows. So the shaykh is saying, when people argue over something that they agree exists, those arguments are simply a reflection of their inability to grasp its true reality. And this is important. Because he says, He says something dope. He says, therefore, if those differences are rooted in the same thing, you say tomato, I say tomato. It's the same thing, but we differ. 
a cup, a vessel. He said, if those differences exist, but they all go back to the same thing, then what we need to understand is that each opinion, if it's sound, and that's another discussion, right? So we'll just assume now that they're all sound opinions, is merely the reflection of part of its reality, since encompassing its whole reality is impossible. So I, I may have an experience with God that you don't have. I may have experience with Tasawwuf that you don't have. I may have experience with Qur'an that you don't have. But you also have experiences that I haven't had, but they're all rooted in the same reality. So we should appreciate those are just drops in the ocean of what it really is. Instead, what do we do as a community? We fight. So, you know, somebody like, yeah, you know, the Quran is like the anchor in my life. And somebody like, well, Aki, I don't think, you know, you should be calling the Quran an anchor. What does it mean to you? Oh, well, you know, it's, it's my kettlebell. Kettlebell, same thing as anchor. So what he's trying to say is, and again, remember the, the context historically of the sheikh is, there's a lot of infighting happening in the Zawiyat. You see this now amongst Western Sufis. My sheikh is this, your sheikh is that. This is some weird stuff. And different groups within the communities. And mathahib. The mathahib are mere attempts at trying to encapsulate the divine law. But the non-sacred can never completely define the sacred. It's beyond our ability. But there is a methodology, because we don't want this to lead to like chaos. Oh, every opinion's correct? Oh, everyone has seen something? No. And we'll study that maybe when we do usul of fiqh. But let's just assume, in framing his argument, he's saying these are people who observe the mainstream methodology. And they looked at something, and they looked at the same thing, and they came to different conclusions. That's simply an evidence of the inability of the human mind to understand it completely. So each one is a reflection of its reality. So like right now, what name of God is impacting you today, man? Montasir. Rab. Uh, I don't know. Um, uh, Mercedes, right? What, what feeling do you have for God today? Like what name of God is impacting you? Or what attribute of God? Rahman. Rub Rahman. Uh, you in the back, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Sarah. Like what name of God is on your mind? Rahim. Rahman, Rahim, Rub. All of us are different. Because none of us can encapsulate the divine reality. So our lives are contextualized into it. You lay for work, Shadid al-Iqab. Right? You're going home, the one who loves, Al-Wudud. Right? The context impacts us. So the Shaykh is saying, Y'all stop tripping about how you define Sufism. Because the reality of Ihsan is sacred. And learn to appreciate that you may be coming from different places. As long as the methodology is correct. And he says, each person's opinion is regarded based on what he or she attained through learning, through experience, through a spiritual state, through intuition, and so on. Meaning, if you're going to judge their opinion, then you should think about the academic prowess that they've presented to the table. Uh, you should think about their experiences regarding that knowledge. You should think about their brilliance. Maybe they have incredible intuition, but you've got to frame that outcome on how they arrive to it. Everybody's okay? It's like, it's very interesting. How do you all feel about this? How does it make you feel as a Muslim to know that you had a s- scholars that wrote with this type of precision, but we're very concerned about like being uh, vigilant and having integrity. And not just like, yeah, Allah says have a pure heart. Get out of here. It's interesting. Yes, sir. Also, like, if you think about it, if you're in the community and you serve different people, like, you're going to appreciate where they come from. 
Like it's, it's upsetting when someone attends one of our events that doesn't look like everybody else. And someone will come to me like, why are they here? I'm like, well, why are they not here? <laughs> they can't answer that question, right? It's like, well, why are they not here? Did the Prophet ﷺ, his musalla, what kind of people? Abdullah bin Omar said the dogs used to pass through the masjid of the Prophet. This hadith, sahih, you deal with it. That was the reality of who they were. I'm not saying, you know, but I remember we had a brother who had some vision issues, had to bring a dog to the masjid, and there had to be a board meeting to decide if this brother could come to the mosque. Not here. We don't have a board. I was like, really? You don't know what to do? <laughs> Let this brother come. Well, there, there's something also happening here with Ahmad Zarouk. And, and, and this has some, some, some in, uh, intersectionality with what we see the left doing now. I consider myself orthodox progressive. I have no idea what that means. Those are anonyms. But the far left, in many ways, and the far right, in many ways, has said we, we no longer need expertise. Aca academic expertise doesn't matter. I worked at Harvard when Occupy went on. And there was a concern at Harvard that this was the first time, for good or bad, that a social movement took off that wasn't born where? In the academy. There was concern. Right? For good or bad, the academy needs to be checked too. Neoliberalism, I have issues with that. But Sheikh is saying, same thing happened to Sufis. Man, y'all got so that you felt you didn't need to tether it to knowledge. But when you untether something from knowledge, what happens is chaos. So there's something happening here, Muhammad, that he's saying, look, that's great. You can have spirituality, and that's fine, and rock it. He's a founder of a tariqah himself. But he's saying that has to be rooted in knowledge. So there's a foundational principle in Islam that we'll get to if we have time today. We respect expertise. We don't like authoritarianism. In today's time, those have been kind of confused. So you could walk into a space and be an imam and immediately be suspect. Because of what? Your knowledge. That's kind of scary. You could be an activist and walk into an imam's gathering. And I've done community organizing for 20 years in Bensonhurst. And be immediately suspect because of your field of expertise. That's not healthy. Imam Zuhri, uh, when he would come from, he's, he's Madani Aslan, when he would come from Damascus to Medina, he would sit with everybody and say like, what's going on in the hood, man? They said he sat with old people. Like, what do old people experience now? He would go to the youth. What, what's popping with the youth? Then he would go back and work as a jurist. He appreciated expertise. Imam Anawi, we talked about it before, his understanding of water that was heated by the sun. There was this notion that water that was heated by the sun caused, caused leprosy. So he says in Al-Majmu'ah, I went to doctors, physicians, and I said, I don't know about this stuff, man. Does water heated by the sun cause leprosy? And at that era, that time, they were like, absolutely not. So he writes, I changed my position based on the expertise of who? Of, yeah, of science. And this continues throughout history. Now, that's challenged. So Sheikh is saying, look, we have to appreciate expertise. It doesn't give it authoritative power but I, I appreciate people who know. When the Prophet ﷺ, Usama ibn Zayd, there is a debate about his paternity. 
What does the Prophet do? He calls what's called Qawafi, the person who used to look at people's hands and feet. That's, the, that's their DNA back then, man. And he says, can you tell us who his father is? So he judges. He said, that's his dad. The Prophet accepts his judgment. He appreciates expertise. Alayhi salatu wasalam. I worry now in an age, the far right especially, man, it looks suspect at expertise. But also the far left has untethered itself from expertise. We need to destroy any notions of knowledge. We need to destroy uh, you know, any type of merit. We're a community that, that traditionally doesn't roll that way. We respect the elders, the history and experiences of the elders without authority. And we respect expertise. Yes, sir. I think this goes to what I was asking about last night. I mean, historically, well, in the current context, I mean, one of the biggest issues is that people don't understand the concept of differences of opinion. That's not something you teach in Sunday school. It's not something like you naturally pick up in your one-to-one Islam. But it's like one of the most essential things for the community to understand. And I think, why aren't more like imams using the minbar or using their different capacities to explain that because I think that helps with people respecting tradition and intellectual thoughts in our tradition when they recognize oh there are so many different opinions on it whereas I think most people their experience is very black and white and I think to this day it's still you know like maybe certain shayuk such as yourself such as other individuals they do make a point to make that an emphasis as to the richness of our tradition but often the case is across the board there's just it's just not there, right? And maybe yeah. people they're not equipped to like explain it. But like for me, from my background, it's like easier to explain like, hey, like different lawyers can have different legal opinions. For you as a layman, as long as you're following one of them, at the end of the day you can say, I'm following that guy who's an expert and like that's something that translates into the American context. So like like different doctors. But like that's something where even among educated friends of mine, like they're they can religiously even like from a secular oh, perspective, okay. like that can resonate with them, right? Got it. But, like even like super educated people from a secular perspective, they still have a very kind of basic understanding of Islam and the tradition in a very black or white sense. And I would say that's what kind of drives the left, right? To say like we don't need these scholars. It's all about patriarchy. It's about misogyny, racism. It's infiltrated the tradition. And the right who says all feminism is right. Nazism. Yeah, that's crazy too. Yeah, you got both. Yeah, both in the Muslim community. I'm yeah. saying, yeah. yeah, absolutely. But I think it's often it's just, there's not the discourse as to like, hey, this is what difference of opinions are. That should be like part of your one-on-one, like as you learn aqidah, as you learn like how to pray, to be a functional Muslim. Like that's I think it's an essential concept. Yeah, and then to build on what are acceptable differences, what are not acceptable differences. How do you navigate unacceptable differences? Those are things that are a must. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, inshallah, we'll get there. Why do y'all think that is? I don't know. I'm a convert, so let me say something. And excuse me, Mercedes, you correct me. I'm not trying to speak on behalf of all converts, right? But for me, even till now, she's saying, like, why is that? Why is there this kind of infatality in the community when this is like this, but then we're, like, arguing and fighting and dividing, especially the Sunni community? Shia community did something that we could learn from. Each Shia has a marja. Like, you have a sheikh you follow. And that marja had to be alive when you reach puberty. So that person is able to serve your context. Right? And the Sunni community with the, post, the, the challenge of the post-industrial age on the Sunni community. And modernity. My, great, my seventh great grandfather was owned by somebody. Modernity changes that. For good or worse. Most situations people may be owned differently, of course. Right? We get it. But like explicit human bondage. So I have the will. It's on my Instagram page, where the man says to my great, my great, 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 great grandfather, "You're free." Why is it that we study Sunni Muslim texts, man? We still study issues of people being in bondage. Al-Abd wal-Amma. So there's a challenge that the Sunni community hasn't caught up to the post-industrial age. So Islamic economics, anyone here studied it, 
Like there's some great work happening, but in general, when you study it, what do you study? Bartering, giving a goat for a camel. That's a problem. The second thing is postmodernity made people very insecure. So people look for identity value in the face of a fractured world. So like in The Walking Dead, you watch The Walking Dead, a can of chili is caviar. So if I'm, if I'm trying to navigate, I'm Frodo, okay, trying to navigate postmodernity, and you come and tell me, this is the haq, I may find comfortability in that. And then there's another Muslim that's saying, that's not quite the same haq that I'm on, I'm going to have a problem with you. Whereas a pre-industrial religious tradition, especially with the lack of mass communication, tends to be more tolerant. Insecurity. And also, the West has been kicking our rear ends for a long time. You can't, uh, so I'm not invited anymore to Brookings. I said you can't talk about ISIS without talking about Western intervention. And the IMF. Bangladesh may be underwater 25 years from now. Not because Bengalis are drinking out of plastic bottles and burning fossil fuels. When you start talking about those things, people get upset because it's easy to blame us. But in that, in that kind of framework, man, it's easy to buy into something being absolute truth where there may be like ease in that issue. So like I had a friend who went to Pakistan. He did Jamaat for, uh, for what, four months? So we just converted. He went to Pakistan. We joined Jamaat Tabliq. Medina, I must down the street, mashallah. And so he called me from Pakistan. You know, I'm in Oklahoma. Homie called me from Pakistan. I'm like, wow, dude, you're in, the, you're in the Muslim world, man. It's amazing. It must be awesome. He's like, man, the people are beautiful. Pakistan's amazing. There's only one thing. I was like, he said, every block is a different masjid. And not because of population, because the other mosque is wrong. We see that in America on Atlantic Avenue. There's two masjids facing each other. One Shia, one Sunni. We, we're different. We have our own different stuff. But like replication of resources, undermining each other's work. In Harlem, I prayed at a mosque one day. Next to it is another mosque. Like next to it physically. Because in the insecurity, I'm looking for a place to belong. And then selfishly, I may construct my identity around the fact that even people on the truth are wrong so I can feel secure that's a psychological issue any other questions before we move on inshallah yes sir why well, gotta be a rabbit hole <laughs> climb the ladder <laughs> yeah I, We'll get to it later. How do you define expertise? Like, what's scholarly expertise? Number one is, of course, if we're talking about academics, they've qualified themselves, right? So the ijazah system died two, three hundred years ago. Why? Especially in Azhar, a hundred years ago, the ijazah system died, except for qira'at. Why? Because they felt the ijazah system was corrupted. You meet people that have ijazah that have never studied with anyone in their lives. They were just at the right place at the right time, and Sheikh said, I give everybody ijazah. Oh, snap, I got ijazah in Bukhari. Can you even read Bukhari? I can't even read in English, dude. But I got a jazz in that joint. So Ezhar becomes concerned and says, we need to do what the West did, create a university system that gives a degree so that we centralize the quality. What Ezhar didn't understand was that Abdul Nasser in the 60s wouldn't come and punk them and uh, impede on their academic freedom and take Ezhar from itself. And corrupt it. So when I was in Azhar, I had professors that got arrested, man. The next day, he's not at school. No trial. There's an 80-year-old man, Quran teacher, this week. Amnesty International is fighting for his case in Egypt. Who's been sentenced to die, man. They said he killed 13 people three years ago. At 77 years old, homie was killing 13 people. What the heck does he eat? So that system has been corrupted. So some traditionalists have reacted and said, we're going to reignite re the idea of ijazah for the sake of preservance and protection. You have other people that are in the academy saying, no, we can try to reform from within. 
although it's under very difficult circumstances, in Syria, for example, or in Iraq. Iraq has some of the greatest Islamic uh, universities in the 70s, man, and 60s. In Morocco, we're still believing in the idea of the, uh, that, that system of getting a degree. Either way, if someone's qualified themselves, number two, they're, recommended by their, they're recognized by their peers. Right? The general notion is like these people, they have knowledge. Number three, I would say they work with others. So like a lot of times people ask questions now. I'm like, I don't, man, I need to talk to a fit counsel. Amja, I need to call Sheikh Walid Basuni, Dr. Hattam Al-Hajj. I need to call Ingrid Madison. I need to call whoever because that, that, that's above me. So there's this idea of like working within fit councils, scholarly bodies. And then the fourth is the community sanctions them. And this is very important that they have a history with the community. So that people in general know them throughout the years. They've proven themselves. They've, they've been in the belly of the beast. You know what I mean? So I would say those four things are very important. But we'll get to it, inshallah. That takes us now to the, the definition of tasawwuf. So Sheikh, he begins to craft this idea, the Islamic idea of ethics in academic discussion and conclusions. And he says, listen, things which aren't sacred are mere reflections or things that even are sacred that people can't understand either are a reflection of their own understanding of that non-sacred. And if it's a sacred entity, immediately by saying it's sacred, it means it's beyond our comprehension. Like we would not know about Allah if Allah didn't tell us about himself. We'd be guessing. That's why knowledge is the first obligation in Islam. The first obligation is cognition then affirmation, then practice. So he's saying, if we talk about an idea that we consider sacred, then immediately we have to acknowledge that since we're not sacred, we cannot encapsulate it with our thoughts. Because to do so would make it what? Non-sacred. We talked about this last year in theology, the idea of مُخَالِفَةُ hawadith, That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in opposition to creation. So I'll give you an example. Everybody close their eyes. We'll do like a little exercise. Try to imagine a creation that's never been seen before. New color, new shape, new dimension, new size, new name, 